Welcome to the Archive Room Podcast. Fastamai, I'm Judith Lay, and I'm very pleased to find you waiting for me at the door to the Archive Room, the place where we keep stories of island life in years gone by, told by the people who were there. So come on in, sit down and make yourself comfortable, and let's listen to this week's selection. In the archive room last week, we met Laurie Davis and Jean Skinner, and they'll be back with us later in the series. Laurie has a seemingly endless supply of stories from his years as a teacher, and Jean vividly remembers her life as a young girl in the Land Army during the Second World War. Last week, we also listened to Irene Shimin talking about her early days in teaching. And even then, there was a sense that here was a person who's packed more adventures into one life than I could even think about. So Irene will be back shortly when majorettes will be on the menu. And talking of menus, my first guest is Eva Kane. Eva lived with her parents in the House Drake Hotel in Onken during the Second World War. Eva's mother was keen to keep the hotel's reputation for fine dining, despite strict food rationing, and she became expert at working the black market, which was just as well if you'd got a royal appointment, as Eva now explains to David Collister. The Onken camp at that time was being run for not internees, but detainees, and these were the likes of the Norwegians who had escaped from Norway Mm. and had come into the British Isles. And they came to Onken camp so that we could find out whether they were genuine detainees or whether they were Quislings. The Quislings were collaborators, weren't they? Yes, collaborators, and they had to be sorted out here. Mm. So the soldiers looking after the detainees... They carried guns, but no ammunition. So we were able to go down to the camp, to this detainee camp, and we did little cabarets for them and that sort of thing. And on one occasion, because they were mainly Norwegian, we had a visit from the Crown Prince of Norway, Crown Prince Olaf, as he was then. He actually became king afterwards. And because we used to do dances for the soldiers of the camp, Mm. the officers came up to us and asked us, would we do a special luncheon party for the Crown Prince of Norway? Which, of course, we said we we would be delighted to do this meal. But we then found out that it was on a date when we had a very, very big wedding for one of the Kirkpatrick family, which was being done in their own home in Springfield. Mm, So we were doing the catering for it. And uh, to cut a very long story short, it was decided that we could do the wedding, but that we had to come back for lunch at House Drake to provide this lunch for the Crown Prince of Norway and Earl Granville and his good lady, who was the Queen's sister. So it was all arranged. Granville being the governor, of course. Granville was the governor at Mm. that time. 
And we made them promise that they would be at House Drake prompt at one o'clock for their luncheon because we had this very big wedding at half past two down at Springfield. And just as the Crown Prince and the Governor, Earl Granville, were coming out of Government House to come down to us, Earl Granville fell flat on his face in a muddy puddle outside Government House. So the Crown Prince said, oh, you must go back in to get cleaned up. And Earl Granville said, oh, I can't do that because we have promised to be at House Drake at a certain time because the Canes have got a very big wedding on. So the two, the police officers, were sent down in advance to House Drake to ask us to have cleaning materials ready to clean up Earl Granville, who was coming down covered in mud. (laughs) And when he arrived, of course, we duly had all the brushes and towels and things ready to clean up Earl Granville to go in for his lunch with the Crown Prince. The two officers, the two police officers who were very well known on the island at that time as the Heavenly Twins. Well, they'd be CID, wouldn't they? Yes, yes. Um, Gail and Lowey, their names were. They came down as advance party, as I've said, and we then told them, or at least Mother told them, your table is in the corner of the lounge for you to have your lunch, and you will kindly disregard everything you are given to eat, because otherwise you will be taking us away to incarcerate us for the rest of the war for serving food that we weren't allowed to serve. Because this was a very severe rationing time. Very severe rationing. But when all said and done, you don't get the chance of feeding a crown prince every day. Mm. So they were given a lunch with a starter, which I can't remember what it was now. The second course was chicken and ham and salads, which, of course, you weren't allowed to put chicken with ham or ham with chicken. It had to be one or the other. (laughs) But they were served chicken and ham and all the salads, followed by ice cream and fruit with it, which again was against the law. Mm. But which these two policemen Mm. sat and thoroughly enjoyed and we weren't taken away at the end of the lunch but we were introduced to the crown prince who thanked us for doing this special meal for them many years later when the crown prince revisited the island for the millennium he asked to be introduced once more to anyone he had met on his first visit as Crown Prince, Hmm. but now, of course, he was king. And we were taken to Government House through uh, Fenella's finding us and and, uh, Mm -hmm. taking us up there. And we were introduced once more to King Olaf, who thanked us and asked us, were we still in House Drake Hotel? But his mother and dad were close on 90 at that time. (laughs) We said no, that they had retired. But it was a wonderful honour to be introduced once more to the Crown Prince, now King. The Nation Station makes radio. 
If we're in the archive room, we really need to use the vintage Manx radio jingles too, don't we? And before that, Eva Kane took us back to a special time at the House Drake Hotel in Onken during the Second World War. Now let's hear more from Irene Shimin. Last week, we left Irene just about to start teaching at Park Road, having been appointed by the famous Miss Naylor. But before we find out about the other things that Irene did in addition to teaching, let's hear about the challenges of the post-war 1950s classroom. There's a one period I must tell you about, is what we call the post-war bulge. That would be in the 50s, because the war ended in 45, and the men would be coming home, and then there was loads and loads of children. Now, the thing was, you know, nobody did anything to prepare for these practically double numbers in classes. But they must have known they were coming, because they were coming through the primary schools. I've had classes of 40s and 50s. Only they were so biddable, it wouldn't have worked. I took this lot for English... I used to scrounge those big wallpaper pattern books and rolls of old wallpaper and have it round the wall, and they would have scraps of paper to write on, and we did a wall newspaper type thing. And that that way, you know, using that sort of stuff to keep them occupied. The girls may well have been biddable, but Irene certainly had no shortage of imaginative ideas to keep them occupied. But change was on its way, with an increase in the school leaving age from 14 to 15. To start off, they were allowed to leave as soon as they'd had their 15th birthday, Mm. provided they had a job to go to. They could go. Then later on, they thought that was a bit untidy, because people were leaving all the time. They then were able to go at the end of the Easter term. But then, you see, in those days, there was a very, very busy tourist season. And a lot of these girls' parents had small boarding houses and they wanted their girls in the summer, yeah. and quite rightly so. So they used to be kept off school and Miss Naylor did her damnedest to try and keep them in school, but she never, she didn't win because they needed the girls. So that's what used to happen. I used to think if they could turn out able to speak properly, able to express themselves and able to read, that was a, a really yeah, good yeah. achievement yeah. and that set them off. Could write a letter... Yeah. Oh, we used to have a thing whereby they had to stand up and give a little talk about for a minute, you know. Yeah. They were a riot. You know, you put the things, t- topics in a hat and they'd drift it out and say, well, I'm going to talk about so-and-so. But as long as they could do that... They all got jobs eventually, well, didn't they? Of course they did. Very good jobs. These girls ended up being very, very useful members of society. Nursing was one. They had a group called the SEN, State Enrolled Nurse, Mm. wasn't it? They were the backbone of the hospital. I remember I was in and out of nobles at one period in my life with asthma. And there were these girls running the war. They were brilliant at it. You had real confidence in them. A lot of them, of course, went to shorthand and typing classes and they would end up in the offices and in government office and do very, very well. Now, there was always, as, as I seem to remember, complete separation between Balakamine boys and Balakamine girls' mm. schools. The buildings were linked, but the pupils and the teachers weren't. But then Next co-education talk. came now, in. Now, in 1974, right. we went co-ed. Mm-hmm. I was still there then. What they did then, they had a junior school and a senior school, and I ended up in Park Road, and as I say, boys and girls... I was in my 50s then, and I was too old to change and too young to leave, so I wasn't happy. But uh, we soldiered on, you know. 
I think girls lost out on it, I do really, because uh, boys tend to show off, tend to occupy your attention more. But there you are. When I started, they were all about the same size as me in the third year, mm. but I stayed the same size and they grew bigger and bigger and bigger, <laughs> towering over you, you know. I used to say to this the lad, sit down so I can thump you. <laughs> and then one wag at the back one day said, he might enjoy that, miss. But they were all right. One boy said, you know, Missy said, I went home and told my mother that you were teaching me, and and the mother said, good heavens, she can't still be there. (laughs) (laughs) But it wasn't just in the classroom that Irene Shimon was busy. Here comes the Douglas Carnival. My father got involved in that, and my sister through Donald Lowey. He was the inspiration behind the Douglas Carnival. But then my sister left the island and uh, my father was retiring. So I got involved with Douglas Carnival and I got involved with the drum majorettes, the Carnival Queen and the Carnival Princess. And uh, we did all those things in one week in August. Very busy week, very popular week. And in those days, the tourist board did really pay a lot out for attractions. Mm. But do you remember Edgar Cottier? Oh, yeah. He did the efforts and attractions from the tourist department. The tourist board brought over the um, American Air Force Band. It must have cost them thousands, but they did. So we thought then we should have some drum majorettes. And the original majorettes were girls who worked in boots. And so we dressed them up and they marched with the band. And they were very popular. So we went on with that. And in the end, I ended up with 36 girls, drum majorettes. And we went everywhere, all around the island. The worst headache was rounding them all up to get them all back to the coach <laughs> to bring them home again. How were they trained? Though? I did it. I made it all up. <laughs> I made it all up. It's daft when you think about it, but I made it all up. And I made all the costumes. I used to be sitting up there in my bedroom with my sewing machine, making all these little bits and bobs. Yeah. But anyway, it all worked. Tourist board bought the hats those, and the mm-hmm. boots. Yes. So we managed like that. And we used to practice every week St Andrew's Hall. We practiced. They were, presumably were called on to go to all kinds of things. We went and everywhere. They were very popular. Well, it was cheap entertainment, wasn't it? We had a, a van where the music was blared out, these yeah. marches. They did counter-marching and fancy marching. We were in the palace ballroom. So you choreographed this in a way. That's a big word for it. I made it all up. <laughs> yeah. The best thing, most impressive thing we did, do you remember oh, the old-time dance festival mm. in the oh, palace yes. ballroom? Yeah. Well, we led the big parade, mm. and that was a wonderful thing to see. You started off with a, that vast ballroom floor was empty, and the girls marched on and did their routine, and then back to the beginning, and then they would march across, and all these ladies and gentlemen in full evening dress would come on, just line up all round the ballroom floor, and yeah. that's the way it started. That wonderful effort it was. But there was tremendous discipline involved with that, though, wasn't it, for the girls, I mean? Oh, yes, because if they, if they didn't come to practices and didn't uh, turn up, they weren't any use to me. I used to have one fear that when I was rounding them up to, to get a coach to go, say, Ramsey, that somebody would be missing and I would have to do it myself, but that never happened. <laughs> <laughs> I used to tell them the coach was leaving half an hour before it did, so I I could get them there. <laughs> Always been bossy. Always been bossy, you know. 
And being bossy is quite a useful quality if you're going to end up in leadership of the Territorial Army and the Girls' Venture Corps. But they're stories for another programme, because now it's time for our first meeting with Alfie Duggan, well-remembered as a former mayor of Douglas and for his family taxi firm and undertakers. Born in 1912, Alfie lived on the South Quay in Douglas and went to Hanover Street School. In this conversation, recorded when he was well into his 90s, Alfie tells David Collister how earning a few shillings caddying at Fort Anne Golf Links when he was just a boy of eight turned out to have very unexpected consequences. It would be the Fort Anne Golf Links. Yeah. It was run by a Mr Forrester from Haddle Towers at Head Road, just up above Ravenscliff. Yeah. We used to caddy um, also in the summertime, when the Fort Anne Hotel was in really, really, really busy. I started with about, about eight years of age. Yeah. And those days you got a shilling for the caddy and a penny for the greenkeeper. So there was a fixed fee then? A fixed fee it was yeah. then. Of course you had to walk around about two to two and a half miles. Yeah. And sometimes the, the, the bag of clubs was bigger than uh, big <laughs> the caddy. We got around in the morning and around in the afternoon. Yeah. That was two shillings you'd had. And well, that was right. a lot of money yeah. because um, two shillings there, a man's wage then was only about a pound. Yeah. So it was a big help to your mothers, really. Mm. And mm. Um, So you had to hand it in, did you? Hand the money in, but you used to get an ice cream, maybe a penny, a penny corner. And um, it went on and on and on. And uh, eventually I was very fortunate because uh, I um, was asked to, uh, by the professional, Mr. J. Orford, if I would care to go on the greenkeeper's hut. So I um, said yes. Yeah. It was a good opening. So you'd start playing at a fairly early age then as well? Yes, you? I was playing at around about, as I mentioned, eight years of age. Yeah. You'd have to have specially made clubs for that, did you? No, no. The people who were members, mm. club members, local people, yeah. I would use their clubs as we were caddying for them, yeah. used their clubs, and I learned with their clubs, actually. With the full-size ones? Yes, the full-size ones. Yeah. Yeah. I got used to them, actually. <laughs> and um, I eventually uh, got the opportunity, uh, went out making maybe a two-ball. One ball may come along, he wanted a game, the professional would say, go on, I'll give him a game. Yeah. So I remember one time I took a six-handicapped man and I was just about 14, 14 and a half, mm. and I beat him six and five. Really? He finished up on the 13th hole. Yeah. Six and five. Uh, funny thing, the gentleman was a, a member of Bramhall Golf Course. Yes. A lovely golf course, Bramhall. Yeah. And his, the professional's name was Mr. Boardman. And those days, he used to wear plus fours. Of course. He said to me, the gentleman, I'll recommend you to my um, professional. We could do it, a, a young fellow like you, so... I never thought no more of it, and uh, next thing, weeks passed, walking along the quayside one day, two gentlemen in plus fours come along. I thought, these must be golf professionals, <laughs> and they were. And funny thing, it was Mr. Boardman from Bramhall. He said to me, do you know where Mrs. Duggan lives? I said, yes. I said, I'm a Duggan. He said, do you work at the Fort Anne Golf Links? I said, yes. And he said, a matter of fact, he said, we've come along to bring you back with us. Anyhow, I found out his name is Mr. Boardman, took him to me mother. I had already made my mind up I was not going to go, though I missed a good opportunity. Mm. My mother also said, no, we're staying here. So I stayed with Mr. J. Orford. Yeah. But uh, the opportunity was there. 
well, my mother was offered double the man's wage near, 35 yeah. shillings per week. Yeah. Also, he would look after me, feed me, clothe me, and spend the money. But we turned the offer down yeah. and uh, stayed with you offered. The first hole was a little bit hilly. Two biggest holes uh, on that golf course was uh, the third hole, which was 390 yards, a bogey five. And um, the fifth hole, which was 410 yards, and that was a bogey five. Apart from that, they were all bogey fours and bogey threes. Yeah. And the smallest hole on the course was the tenth, and the tenth was uh, a massy nibbling shot, a high ball, dropped dead on the green, and that was uh, 120 yards. Can you remember how much the membership fee would have been, the annual membership for the members then? Daily ticket, for instance, would be two and six for a daily ticket. I think a weekly ticket was 12, 12 and six. Mm. Around about an annual ticket annually would be around about the reason five guineas. Got a, a lot of use then? Oh yes, it got a lot of use and uh, June, July and August. The Fort and uh, Golf Links was very, very busy because the hotel was just down below. You got the same people year after year, and they all knew you. Yes, they were nice old days, yes. Caddying at the age of eight and discovering his own skill as a golfer was just one small part of Alfie Duggan's long and fascinating life. He'll be back again in a future programme with Tales of a Taxi Driver, a job he did for over 30 years. And we'll finish off now with a hint of just one of the topics we'll be talking about in the archive room next week. Let's talk about the horse trams now. You had royal visitors on these trams, of course, several times, didn't you? You name it, we've had them. Oh, the Queen Mother, Prince Philip, Lord Louis Mountbatten, Princess Anne, the Princess Royal, as it is now. The Queen, Prince Philip, Harold Wilson. (laughs) It's the voice of horse trams manager for Douglas Corporation, Wilson Gibb. So (laughs) the night before these VIPs arrived then, there'd be some panic to get the tram in perfect shape, would there? Well, it, it wouldn't be hard to get the tram in perfect shape, really. It's only a matter of cleaning it. And we would, we would have a tram which wouldn't be in normal use. It would have a paint job. But over the years, if there was any sort of dignitary coming to the Isle of Man, you know, the first thought was get him on the horse tram. Yes. But those days are well and truly gone now. I think it's probably for safety reasons. Wasn't there an occasion when the Duke of Edinburgh had a horse drawing a tram that had his own, the horse had his name as well? It had his name for one day, let's put it that way. <laughs> Philip for one day and then it went back to his normal t- <laughs> the following day. I think we changed another horse to Winston one time for a similar reason. <laughs> oh, really? There are some wonderful photographs of these horse trams in, in various publications in the Isle of Man. But one is of the 80th anniversary in 1956, where there were 80 horses actually on display on the promenades, all standing in rows, really. That's right. Uh, yes. that, that was, I mean, people wouldn't imagine there was that many horses needed. Well, um, it's surprising how many horses you need to operate, say, one tram. Uh-huh. I mean, in the days there, 1956 and earlier, um, when, when the trams were really, really busy, in the morning you would have what was known as the five-minute cars, which is eight trams to make a five-minute service, and then the manager might want 16 trams to go from 9 o'clock till 11, so you'd have to put another another eight, eight trams. Now now you've got 16 horses used between 9 o'clock and 11 in the morning. Right. And then those horses would be changed again at 11. Now you wouldn't want the 16 trams, you'd need another eight horses to change. Now you've got 24. And then they would be changed again at 1 o'clock. And the manager then, whoever was at the time, maybe a fleet with boats and stuff in like that, 
he would want another 16. He may even want 20, 24 trams out. Mm. I mean, I mean, you're talking an awful lot of horses. And then in those days, the trams used to run until midnight. So I suppose in the stables in the 50s, you would have uh, something like maybe 90 horses. You know? It takes take a lot of feeding, that. Well, it, it does, does take a lot of feeding. But when you come to consider pre-war, there would have been 46 trams on the track at any one time or sometimes, and they had 144 horses. Where did the manure go then? For the answer to that and everything else you need to know about the horse trams, be sure to join me in the archive room again next week, just after six o'clock here on Manx Radio. But right now, it's time to turn off the lights and close the door. I really hope you've enjoyed this meander down Manx memory lane and you'll join me again next week, just after six o'clock here on Manx Radio. You can listen to all the programmes in previous series of The Archive Room by subscribing for free to The Archive Room podcasts at manxradio.com or by using your usual podcast provider. And I'm Judith Lay saying thank you for listening and wishing you a very good evening. The Nation Station